Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, history has proven time and time again that if you tell a lie often enough, most people will believe it. Unscrupulous people, both in the name of God, although they were falsely using it, and in the name of their own politics, have taken advantage of this over and over again. And a great example of that are the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, who, as we learned on the night before Easter, but we learned it on Easter morning this year, went and told Pilate, we know that that guy said he's going to rise in three days, so let's, let's secure up that tomb. Basically, intention, if he does rise, we'll kill him again. They couldn't. They start scrambling to cover it up, and man, no matter how much God keeps appearing, short of just making a very forceful entry, they continue to cling to the lie. Now, sadly, of the group that went and talked to Pilate about securing the tomb was not just the chief priest, whose very job was to function as the substitute for Christ and point to Christ until he came, but it was also the Pharisees. See, the group of Pharisees were one of the ones who had truly swallowed down the greatest lie ever told. The devil told the first lie ever when he told Adam and Eve that God was holding something back, even though everything was made for them. He got them to eat of that forbidden fruit, and they had just done evil. They had just done unholiness, and they lost the image of God, which is holiness. And ever since then, the devil doesn't care what you believe, so long as you believe the lie that you do something to contribute or add to your salvation. We call it work righteousness. And as a Pharisee, Saul bought into that lie, lock, stock, and barrel. So he is on his way, zealously trying to stamp out this message that Christ is risen and he's done all the work for our salvation. If somebody wants to brag at how holy they are in and of themselves, they cannot stand the message that Christ had to die for your sins and that Christ rose victorious and did all the work for your salvation. Saul's conversion is very miraculous. And yet in that conversion, we can often see how Christians themselves, with the sinful nature that is the devil's puppet, can easily be deluded in thinking that they themselves have something to do with their conversion. Throughout a lot of church history, especially the medieval ages, the big lie the devil was using was kind of like when you leave the headlights on on your car and the battery dies. That if somebody just comes along and gives you a jump start, that alternator will do the rest and your car will stay running. Well, they had the idea that, that God infused grace into you. He jump started you and then you started earning your salvation. That's a misunderstanding. That's a lie about conversion. Others have taught, thanks to a great heretic called Pelagius, basically that you weigh the evidence and you make a decision for Christ. Some teach that, well, God kind of like, kind of like, like putting bait on the lure, he kind of baits you in and then you make your decision. No matter which way you go when it comes to conversion, there's a lot of lies that point right back to that you do something in order to be saved. And then that always leads to the devil's lie, whether it's you do all the work in order to earn your salvation or you do your best and God will do the rest. It takes all the work for your salvation. It's just the amount of how much work and it takes it out of the hands of Christ and it puts it in various degrees into your own. 
But as we look at Paul's conversion, even though it's a very miraculous and seems to be different than other conversions, we're going to ask the question, how is Paul an example of your conversion? And we're going to remove all of our own works from that. And so we begin. Our sermon text is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, which we heard is our first lesson, and I'll be reading it throughout the lesson. So in our first few verses, we hear, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any men or women belonging to the way, he might bring them to Jerusalem as prisoners. He's trying to stomp this out. You cannot act more as an enemy of God than to try to stomp out that message that Christ has done all the work for your salvation, that he died for you after bearing the punishment and rose for you to give you the full assurance that your sins are paid for in full. Paul, or Saul here is truly acting as an enemy, but he's an enemy who has been duped by the devil's delusion. He's an enemy just like everybody born after Adam and Eve who weren't born, Adam and Eve, when they lost the image of God, that's having a sinful nature. And we often think of a sinful nature by its results, by the actions that it does, the sins. But truly the sinful nature begins by, in best case scenario, we are just indifferent to God. We're not on fire for Him. In worst case scenario, we can't stand it and we will work against the message. But it's all animosity towards God. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I hate to break it to you, But just like Saul, even though he was persecuting God's church, he was an enemy living in a delusion, and that's the natural state in which we're conceived in. We don't see God as the loving God who is holy and has credited us with his holiness. We see God as the enemy. We'll worship any God but God. We'll make our own selves God and tell God how to be God for us. So already we see the first example. Just like Saul... We are an enemy living in delusion. So how do we get out of the delusion? Verse 3 through 6. As he went on his way and was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? He replied, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you need to do. The men traveling with him stood there speechless. They heard the voice but did not see anyone. Jesus specifically reveals himself to Saul, the persecutor. And those are words that should be tremendous comfort. Because Saul is arresting individual Christians. But how does Jesus view it? I'm the one you're persecuting. When you come after one of my little lambs, you're coming after me. And it's time that you knock it off. And Saul is terrified. The only thing that was going to break the delusion is that the Lord reveal himself to Saul. Now, God would use that Saul. We would know him as the Apostle Paul. And he'll write 50 to 70% of the New Testament. I've never done the exact math equation. You and I now have both the Old and New Testament. We live in the delusion as an enemy of God, not seeing him as the source of all of our good, as the greatest joy. And God must reveal himself to us. And he does that through his word, which he had recorded by Matthew and John and Peter and the evangelists and the apostle Paul. 
The Lord has taken us from being his enemies and first of all, he's shown the light on us. This is why John begins his gospel with that analogy that in the beginning was the word, but he continues saying that he's the light no darkness can overcome. We're living in a lie. And the only way that that lie can be broken is that God reveal himself to us. He does that through his word. Let me give you an example. When I took intro to psychology at the University of Wyoming a long time ago now, one of the things we covered was how they have discovered that police accidentally, simply by questioning people, can actually hypnotize them. And people who are completely innocent have been accidentally hypnotized into confessing crimes that they could not have possibly done. And some of them have spent years in prison before the truth finally came out. That is how deep the delusion is of our sinful nature, because he wants to be duped. And then God turns on the light. Suddenly there's the camera, the hardcore evidence. There it is. This person's innocent. But in our case, it's here's the delusion and God loves you and he's your savior. So he reveals himself to us by shining the light of his word on us. Verse 8 says, they raised up Saul from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could not see anything. They took him by the hand and led him into Damascus. For three days he could not see, and he did not eat or drink. God chastened Saul. Saul had been blind, brothers and sisters in Christ. Recall that he, unlike any of the other apostles, he was the one who was studying to be a rabbi. All the other apostles... They were average Joes. They were blue-collar guys. Ah, but Saul, he studied under the great Gamaliel. And he had access to all the Old Testament scriptures. And unlike us today, he probably had a predominant book of the Old Testament memorized. Had it right up here in his head. And yet he had missed it. The whole point of the Old Testament... From the fall into sin when God promises the seed of the woman, hint, virgin, would crush the serpent's head until the light goes out and, 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 all, and it seems like everything is lost, but God promises the Savior's still coming. Saul had missed all of it. He had been blind. He would have to be led around. He was leading Christians to their doom, leading them on chains to Jerusalem, and now for a few days he's going to have to be led around. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I've learned as a pastor, when I preach sermons on bearing crosses, I make a distinction between punishment and discipline. Now, they're synonymous terms in English, but I make a distinction. And if I don't say it in the sermon, somebody's going to get upset with me. See, the punishment for sin is abandonment by God in all eternity for hell. Christ bore that for you. When Christ reveals himself to you, you are free of the punishment from sin. But he disciplines you, just as he disciplined Saul. Now, we want to think of that as punishment. It's actually God's love. So I always tell the story. I had a child one time. My wife and I were busy cooking Thanksgiving dinner, and, I, and all the burners are on on the oven. And I look up, and I see this little hand reaching up on the stovetop. I know that's a third-degree burn about to come. So I grab the hand and slap it and say, no, no, owie, owie, and hold it just close enough to the burner that the child would pull his hand back so he could feel, not without being hurt, pain. God disciplines us like that because he doesn't want us to burn in the flames of hell. And so in Saul's conversion, he does give him a discipline. And throughout Saul's life, there would always be crosses upon him. He says in 2 Corinthians, about, he complains about a thorn in his flesh and says, three times I asked the Lord to remove it. And his answer was, 
My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So brothers and sisters in Christ, God allows crosses. He allows discipline to come upon us because he doesn't want to lose us. He wants us to, for a minute, fill the flames of that hell and say, No, Owie, that's not where your heavenly Father wants you to go. And he does it so that we don't embrace those sins and squeeze the Holy Spirit out of our heart. And oftentimes I have found, before I was even a pastor, when I got the privilege of getting to share the good news of the resurrected Lord with one of the hurting people who needed to know their Savior because they were enemies in the delusion, it's hard times that God had allowed to come upon them and they would turn to me in various ways and say why is God doing this to me what do I have to do to get God to help me and it's neat to say you don't understand God's already helping you so how is Paul's conversion an example of yours both enemies living in a delusion the Lord had to reveal himself to break the delusion and the Lord has used and continues using crosses to chasten us so that we don't run our way into the flames of hell I gave you a hint of the big one here. I've had the privilege when people are bearing those crosses of getting to be the one the Lord sent to point them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and rules over all creation for them. And that is the next point in our sermon. Verse 10. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord told him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. In fact, at this very moment he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many people about this man and how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem, and he has authority here from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. Indeed, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Ananias left and entered the house. Laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, whom you saw on your way here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus appears to Saul on the road. Jesus could have just told him, all right, here's the things you need to know. Whammo! I'm just going to miracle those into your head. Boom! Now you're the Apostle Paul. Let's get going. Could have done it. He's the Almighty Lord. Instead, he gives him enough. I'm the one you're persecuting. And then he sends somebody to share the word of God with him. Ananias, here I am, Lord. Go visit Saul. Does Ananias say, okay, I'm on my way. Woo-hoo. No. Ananias, like you and I, he has a sinful nature. And Ananias is a devout Christian. How wonderful we are to have this man as a brother. But Ananias, he knows God's all-powerful. He knows Christ is risen. He knows Christ is ruling over all creation. But in that weakness, he says, Lord, that guy's persecuting Christians. Do you really want to send one of us? Yes, get going. Ananias was a weak human being, just like you and I. He wasn't perfectly holy like the Lord, otherwise he wouldn't have needed a Savior. And he was reluctant. Moses was reluctant. We can go through all the reluctant prophets and at times the apostles as they run. God uses weak human beings. Now, for many of us here this morning, the weak human beings God used was that he had us born to Christian parents. 
And mom and dad were not the perfect parents, but mom and dad brought us up, brought us to the baptismal font. Mom and dad taught us at home. Mom and dad brought us to Sunday school and we knew the Lord. But for others, God had a different plan. It's just, it's, it's a wonderful blessing to never know a day in which you didn't know the Lord, but it's a blessing also to know what it's like to not have the Lord and then have them. And so for others, God sent somebody. Many times when I was a layman, I could tell you I did way better evangelism work among the unbelievers than I get to do now as a pastor because guys at work would say, Freddie, things are going pretty rough. This cross is coming upon them. So God sends weak human beings with the means of grace, with the instruments in which he gives us grace. I already covered God had the apostles and the evangelists write the New Testament. They come with the word, they share it with us, and we become assured of God's promises. So we continue on, verse 18. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul is now the Christian named Paul. The Lord used the means of grace to heal. That's, that's not the way we talk in English. The Lord has certain tools he uses to give us his grace. We've already covered the big one. It's his word. His word which tells us we're unholy, but God loves us and did something about it. He's made us holy. And when he converts us, we have Christ's holiness. That heals us of that delusion, of the malady of our sinful nature. We combine the word with water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sealed in our heart. In the case of people who are baptized, for example, as infants, that Holy Spirit gives birth to the new man then and there. In the case of people who are older, the Holy Spirit comes through that word, gives birth to the new man, and then seals himself in their heart there with baptism. The Lord used the means of grace to heal. But we continue in our lives having that sinful nature, even though we have the new man. And so the Lord continues having his word preached to us. And he's given us one other tool in which he gives us his grace. He combines his word with a dried piece of bread. We call it the wafer and a little bit of wine. And he continues to nourish our soul to strengthen us beyond ways of just hearing and reading that our holy God has credited us with his holiness and has washed away our sin. This heals us of the malady of that sinful nature. And it's what keeps us seeing the truth in the darkness of this world's delusion that we can earn or contribute somehow to our salvation or that we don't even need it. And so God continues to work for us. Now, the last thing that we've already covered the text, but in verse 15, what did God say to Ananias? The Lord said to him, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the people of Israel. He is the apostle that sent to our ancestors, to us, the Gentiles. The guy who was studying to be a rabbi, who had major portions of the Old Testament memorized, he sent for us. He had a commission directly from the Lord. You might not think, well, Pastor Sherman, we called you and you have an indirect commission from the Lord. But you, you still have a direct commission from the Lord. When Jesus appeared the first time in his resurrection to the apostles, recall he breathed on them and gave them the keys and said, whatever sins you bind on earth are bound in heaven. Whatever sins you loose on earth are loosed in heaven. He has given you the commission to proclaim that people are unholy 
and then to remove their sins by showing them that they've been credited with Christ's holiness. And in case you missed it, he says it in Matthew chapter 28 at his ascension, go and make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and by teaching them everything I've commanded you. Now, like maybe God doesn't come to you like Ananias and say, by the way, go and tell this person. No, he entrusts your children to you. He entrusts your co-workers and he presents the opportunities. I've learned if I force the conversation in, like forcing open a door at the pry bar, it always flops. But when those people come to me and they're bearing crosses, sometimes a simple invitation, would you like me to pray to God for you? Would you like me to share with you how God is actually using this hardship as a blessing to you? Yes, you too have a commission from God. He gives you the gifts and he puts you at the right time and he gives you the word, which is one of the many reasons why you're here today. So we've asked that question. How is Saul, we know as the Apostle Paul, how's his conversion an example of your own? All of us, like Saul, were an enemy living in a delusion. In all cases, the Lord had to reveal himself to break the delusion. In all cases, the Lord has used and continues using crosses to discipline or to chasten us. In all cases, the Lord sent a weak human being with the means of grace. In all cases, the Lord used the means of grace to heal, to give us that new man so that we see through the delusion. And then the Lord gives us the commission. Go and tell others the good news that God who is holy has died for them to give them his holiness, has rose victorious that they have eternal life. Amen. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be power and glory forever and ever. Amen.